But Weekend Variety Wireless. Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal. This week, another huge ship. This is on a par with the Titanic, 1914 too, around the same era. Oh, the loss of life is just appalling. A Canadian tragedy, the worst in its maritime history, peacetime. John McChrystal, the Empress of Ireland. More people died in this one than died in the Titanic. It's got many parallels with the Titanic as well, because, yep, it's the same era, only two years later than the Titanic. And it was accompanied with horrendous loss of life. There is a lot of speculation that's gone on about how this occurred. This is uh, one of those peculiar things where two ships in fog somehow managed to find each other and collide. This is an impressive sized concern, isn't it, the Empress of Ireland? Yeah, she's a monster, really. She's 550 feet long, so that's about 160 metres. She's 14,500 tonnes. She's a twin-screw iron steamer, so she's got two big propellers and a number of large steam-driven engines. She looks a bit like a scaled-down Titanic. She's only got two towering smokestacks instead of the Titanic's four. The Titanic had to be in everyone's minds, I suppose, at that stage, only two years previously in the same part of the world. But... Since she was launched in 1906, she had been backwards and forwards across the Atlantic no fewer than 95 times. So she had every right to call herself one of the safest vessels afloat because despite the fact she'd had a couple of minor mishaps in her career, she was still sitting there pretty. Big, powerful, confidence-inspiring vessel, I guess. Because we're talking about a collision, we have to mention the other vessel. This was the store stud and she was a single-screw steamer of 6,028 tonnes, so roughly half the size, I suppose. 440 feet long, so still pretty big. That's roughly 120 metres. She was in Norwegian ownership at the time of this, and she was a collier, so she was purpose-built to run coal around the place. Probably most significantly, because she was designed to work in the North Atlantic, she was ice-strengthened, so she had a lot of steelwork about her bows, and she also had what's known as a reverse rake to her bow. So most people looking at a ship, most children drawing a ship, will show the bow angled back down towards the water. This was the opposite. She had a nearly vertical bow, but with a slight angle outward from the ship into the water. Ah. Uh, and this proved to be significant, of course. And in fact, subsequent events and the involvement of this kind of bow in this collision convinced naval architects that the reverse rake on a big ship was a bad idea. Oh, good heavens. So it looked a little like a trireme, those old Greek rowing things. The bow goes out towards the water rather than sucking under. Specifically to ram other vessels, uh, significantly <laughs> exactly. or not. Yeah. Right. Uh, okay, the voyage, uh, 1914. The Empress of Ireland had been across the Atlantic 95 times. The captain hadn't, had he? 
No, he wasn't that experienced. He had a fair bit of sea experience under his belt, but he hadn't been commanding this vessel for very long. He was Lieutenant Henry George Kendall of the Royal Naval Reserve, regarded as a pretty competent seaman nonetheless. And this ought to have been a pretty routine voyage. The suggestion has been made that there was a lot of pressure on the skippers of these vessels. The company that owned this is the Canadian Pacific Railway, and she's designed to link up with this enormous railway that ran right across Canada. In their words, they were creating the greatest transportation system on earth. It was an age of superlatives, really, let's face it. Mm. You could leap on a train on the Pacific side of Canada, duck across to the Atlantic side, hook up with the ship, and find yourself in England without significant inconvenience or mucking around making connections. There's a bit of pressure, needless to say, since this is a railroad company and this is the kind of enterprise they're in, to keep up with the times that were stipulated. There is the same kind of suggestion hanging over this one as there was over the captain of the Titanic, that perhaps time pressure had something to do with the decision-making. So many people aboard and so many died. 1,475 people were aboard the Empress of Ireland. It's amazing, isn't it? And fully two-thirds of them didn't make it off. More people died aboard this than the Titanic, and yet we remember the Titanic. We don't really remember the Empress of Ireland. She's starting to become uh, memorialised in film. There's been a few novels written around her, and there's been a lot of speculation just in the last 10 years to work out who was at fault in this whole tragedy and to bring the whole thing a little bit to light. It's known as Canada's worst maritime disaster. There's, needless to say, a higher consciousness of what went on in Canada than there is elsewhere. But yeah. even there, not that many people, if you ask them whether they've heard of the Empress of Ireland, will say yes, whereas everyone's heard of the Titanic. Because of the Titanic, she had enough lifeboats aboard for everyone. And in fact, she carried lifeboat capacity for 2,000 people. She was designed to carry 1,700. She had watertight compartments, both longitudinal and transverse. The longitudinal ones, the ones that run the length of the vessel, as the name implies, become slightly significant as the story unfolds. She was a ship that was intended to not be unsinkable, but to take her time about sinking, should she run into trouble. The idea there is that if you delay the inevitable and the ship takes a while to get down, you can muster your passengers and crew in orderly fashion and get everyone into lifeboats and clear. That was the theory. Unfortunately, it was not what happened. And how and why has uh, been debated and a lot of work's gone into how this turned into be such a massive loss of life disaster. There have been television programs made on this and we have a segment from one of them up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. It'll give you a bit of a, a, an idea of what we're talking about. And what you probably will like to have a look at is how the two ships collided because that becomes central in the litigation about who was at fault. This has been argued about for a very, very long time. So you can see how the ships came together as we get further into this shipwreck tale. We'll take a break. It's 1914, the sinking of the Empress of Ireland. She collided with the store stud, a collier, in the River Channel of the St. Lawrence in Canada. We'll be back very, very shortly. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal. We're talking the Empress of Ireland, 1914. Shockingly, greater loss of life than the Titanic. The final voyage then. How did she meet her fate? 
Well, she departed Quebec on the 28th of May 1914 at 4.30 in the afternoon and she was bound for Liverpool. She had 1,475 people aboard, around 400 of whom were crew. She had wireless and lots of lifeboats and watertight compartments. Didn't have radar, of course. It was clear when she left, and in fact for most of her short voyage it was perfectly clear. But there was the suggestion that either fog or smoke might prove to be a problem in the St Lawrence. The St Lawrence is notorious for fog, a very cold mass of water meeting warm air. It quite frequently produces sea fogs. And also there was a major forest fire burning at the time which apparently was causing smoke problems out in the channel as well. She made a routine passage down the St Lawrence River and she reached a tiny town called Rimouski, 180 miles northeast of Quebec, on the shores of the St Lawrence. And there she picked up some mail, exchanged pleasantries and then went on her way. She dropped her pilot at a place called Pointe-au-Père, otherwise known as Father Point, and then fairly shortly after that, she was steaming in clear weather in the vicinity of the other vessel, the Storstad. It's the middle of the night, and it's clear at this point. Clear enough for the skipper of the Empress of Ireland to see pretty much everything, including a fog bank which is going to roll off the land, he can see that. And he can also see the navigation lights of another vessel. This is around 1.30 in the morning by this stage. And we can imagine that all the passengers, almost all, would be tucked up in bed? Yeah, now that's a significant detail, of course. Thrill of departure and all the rest. Starts getting dark, then gets very cold, and there's not much joy to be had by staying out on deck. So pretty much everyone was inside, and the vast majority of people were asleep and in their bunks. Needless to say, great big liner, transatlantic in those days. There were three classes aboard. There was third class down in the bowels of the ship, steerage. There were second class who were in the higher decks, and then there were first class who were right up in the top decks with all the views and the fresh air and ready access to the lifeboats. Depending on where you were tucked up in the ship had a huge bearing on what happened next, needless to say. There was a little bit of activity, a few card games, a few of late-night strollers who were braving the cold, that kind of thing. But pretty much it was only the crew who were up and about at that stage. Around 1.30 in the morning, they made their first visual contact with the store stud, which had come up from the town of Sydney in Nova Scotia with a full load of coal. She's sitting very low in the water because she's fully laden. She's steered by a very experienced seaman by the name of Captain Thomas Anderson. He sees the Empress of Ireland, can't miss her, great big lit-up passenger liner off there in the distance. According to him, he sees the Empress of Ireland off his port bow and showing her starboard light. So that tells him he's looking at the right-hand side of the ship and she's off to the left of him. If they're on a converging course, which apparently they are, he has the right of way because the rules of the road at sea are that you give way to the right. So as he's approaching from the right of the Empress of Ireland, he has the right of way at this point. What happened, and this is the last point at which both skippers actually agreed on what happened next, the Empress of Ireland made a slight correction to her course which should have made both vessels even safer. But right at that point, the fog rolled over and both vessels lost sight of one another. What was the course adjustment? Now, the course adjustment, I expect, was that the Empress of Ireland altered her course in such a way as to increase the distance by which the two vessels would pass, turning towards the store start in such a way that they should pass port to port, which is the recommended and safe way for two powered vessels to pass at sea. Okay, uh, a lot has got to do with the lights that are observed on the mastheads of both ships, right? That's right. When you think about it, at night you can't see a thing, especially if there's fog around. So that's why we have navigation lights aboard vessels. 
you've got a green on the starboard bow and you've got a red on the port bow. You've got a white masthead light, which is visible from 180 degrees. If you've got two masts, you've got another such light at the back. On the back mast, also visible from 180 degrees. And then you've got the stern light, which is only visible from behind the vessel. As the vessel rotates around her axis, your view of those lights changes. So if you can only see a green light and then the white masthead light, you're looking at the right-hand side of the ship. If you can see a green and a red and a masthead light, she's coming straight towards you. If you can see a green and a red and the stern light and a masthead light, then she's heading away from you. That's your only information in the days before radar and bridge-to-bridge -bridge communication. These lights and their configuration are the only way you can know what the other vessel is doing. Most of the conflict in the Court of Inquiry in the aftermath of this horrible episode, turn around what the lights were doing and then what the various foghorn signals given were. There are two conflicting stories, one from the ship that hit the Empress of Ireland and the captain of the Empress of Ireland herself, because both of those stories cannot exist at the same time in the same universe, can they? That's right. Listening to both of the skippers in the aftermath of it all, one cynic said that it was remarkable that there was such loss of life involved in this because if you were to believe both skippers, both vessels were dead in the water and not making any way at all when yeah. they collided. Yes. So we've got two irreconcilable accounts of what happened. What are the protocols then in fog? Because this is what happened. You can imagine very, very cold northern Canadian evening. It's nearly two in the morning. Brr, and you're suddenly covered in fog. You sign your fog horn you, to say where you are. There's that oral communication as well at sea in the protocols. You've described this very well in the past as like that moment where, when you're coming over the brow of a hill and you get sunstrike. Your windscreen goes completely opaque and from then on it's sort of guesswork based on your last known visual contact with everything around you. That's the feeling that you must get on the bridge of one of these vessels in those days. The first thing both skippers said they did is slow down, which is quite sensible. I'll stick with the Empress of Ireland's version for now because it's simpler. She maintains that she slowed down and actually made an effort to stop. She put her engines astern and then having done that, she sounded three short blasts on her foghorn, which signifies I am going astern. This signal, according to Thomas Kendall, was acknowledged with a single long blast from the Storstad. Kendall looked over the side of a ship and noticed that he wasn't going anywhere anymore, he was dead in the water, so he sounded two blasts to signify I am underway, in other words, I don't have an anchor on the ground, but I'm stopped. Again, this signal was acknowledged with a single long blast. This sound came from off the starboard bow of his vessel, so somewhere just out there in front of him to the right. Two minutes later, the navigation lights emerged from the mist, and what he could see, to his horror, were the red and the green and the masthead lights of the Storstad, meaning she was heading directly for him. He estimated she was about a ship's length away, so no more than a couple of hundred metres. Collision was now inevitable and he saw that. What Kendall claims he did is he ordered his engines to be put full ahead, so give her everything, and turn the helm to port, so that he could turn the collision that must now happen into an oblique one, and maybe the Storstad will bounce off. Before his big, huge, ponderous vessel can respond to either of these commands, the Storstad ploughs into the side of his vessel, bang amidships, really, right between her two funnels. The reverse rake on the bow means that the first contact is below the waterline and the majority of the damage is done below the waterline. 
it's a massive hole. Uh, it's around 30, 40 feet wide, and it's around 12 feet into the vessel. What happened next, according to Kendall, is that he was on his megaphone by this stage and yelling at the other guy to stay where he was and to put his engines full ahead. So in other words, he wanted the store stud to keep boring into the side of his ship because that would minimise the inflow of water. Oh. What he claims happened next is that the store stud then reversed her engines and pulled out, and both ships lost contact with one another in the fog. The moment of penetration apparently was quite understated, really. So clean was the impact that it's been likened to an assassin's knife or a chisel into tin. Both quite graphic images, but just this sharp, very strong bow of the store stud just knifing into the side of the Empress of Ireland between her structural members. So there wasn't even really a significant impact to alert a lot of the crew. With such a large concern, I suspect a lot of people would think, while it's not good, uh, it certainly shouldn't sink the ship, should it? No, and initially there was no major alarm. A lot of people felt the impact and imagined that what they'd done is bumped into the ship bringing out the males because they knew that was due to happen sometime during the night. Of course, that had happened a few hours earlier. The first sign of trouble on the upper decks, of course, was the ship began to lean over, and that's never a good look. Mm. Even then, a couple of the passengers recall saying, reassuring others, saying she'll right herself. It's just a, a temporary glitch kind of thing. But at the same time, they could hear the engines of the Empress of Ireland being put full ahead. The sudden roar of the engines was clearly unusual, and this was unsettling to people as well. The next sign of trouble was the engine suddenly die, and with it goes the electric power, and she's plunged into complete darkness. Below, of course, you didn't need quite so many subtle clues to the fact that there was major trouble because if you hadn't been actually annihilated in third class by the bowels of the store stud, then what happened next is water started pouring in along the corridors and what have you. And also, against regulations, a lot of the portholes on that deck were open and water poured through these. Apparently, according to one passenger, he struggled from his bunk at first impact and within a couple of minutes, the water was shoulder deep in his cabin as he was struggling to get out. And this is freezing water too. This water is around four degrees, so it's right down close to freezing. This isn't that long into the Atlantic navigation season. Not that long ago, this water was completely frozen over. It's bitterly cold. You're asleep one moment, the next minute you're swimming for your life. These guys have only just got aboard the ship. Most of them haven't even had a chance to have a walk around, and they haven't had a walk around in daylight. They don't know the layout of the ship, and they haven't had any significant safety drills either. Every possible disadvantage. And it's pitch black. Let's not forget that. It's two in the morning. It's two in the morning. When, yeah. when as they commonly say, the human spirit is at its lowest ebb, even when you're not sinking. Hundreds of people must have perished within minutes of that collision and the influx of water that was compromising the Empress. The consolation, I guess, for the rapidity of events here is that most of them will have died a very quick death and most of them, I guess, not fully aware of what was going on either. Consolations are few in this story, but that's one of them really. What's going on on the bridge at this point is Kendall, the Empress of Ireland's master, has ordered her full ahead to try to get her to shallow water. If he can beach her, then he can save everyone. But he loses power within, I believe it was around a minute of collision. So that's it. He apparently then turned to his first mate and said, the ship is gone, women to the boats. Good heavens. Uh, he ordered an SOS sent. He claims he ordered the watertight compartments closed, although there is physical evidence contradicting that claim. 
as you carry on listening to this story, more contradictions will come about. It is the human tragedy that is about to unfold and that halfway has. The Empress of Ireland, our shipwreck tale this week, and we'll be back very shortly with John McChrystal. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. It's 2am in Canada, St Lawrence River, uh, freezing, freezing water. 1914, the Empress of Ireland, a very large ship, 1,500 to round it, souls aboard, as they say, and she's been struck by a collier and her side torn open, taking water, and her engines have failed. As you mentioned earlier, John, the ship was supposed to have the sort of mechanical and structural integrity that she's not going to sink quickly and people should be able to get off on the lifeboats, which are now a full contingent for saving passengers. It didn't quite work that way, unfortunately. The fact that many of the passengers in the lower decks had their portholes open greatly aggravated the ingress of water. And what that did is trump the idea of having transverse watertight compartments because what now happens is that the water comes in and it's lying on one side of the vessel. She's also got longitudinal bulkheads, which were thought to be a great idea in case you dinged one side of the ship, the rest of the ship would remain more or less intact and the water wouldn't invade uncompromised compartments. Trouble is, when you flood one of these longitudinal compartments, this has the effect of trying to pull the ship over. And this, of course, is exactly what happens here. All the water is coming in one side and it can't go anywhere. So what it does is it makes her keel over. It gets rapidly worse. And in fact, those who are trying to climb up the staircases describe just a press of people trying to climb staircases that were practically unclimbable because they were just about lying on their sides and water was pouring up along the passageways behind them. In darkness. Uh, In darkness. Yeah. Oh, my God. I wonder what so many of those people must have been thinking with all of the stories of the Titanic, which were well known now. It was a pretty common belief aboard at the stage that they'd struck an iceberg. It must have been on every sea passenger's mind in those days, especially climbing aboard a great big imposing ship, knowing she was smaller than the Titanic and wasn't surrounded by such claims of unsinkability and that kind of thing. If she could go, then your ship could go as well. And when something went bump in the night like this and you began to sink, that must have been the prevailing theory. They began scrambling out as best they could. Needless to say, those who were on the upper decks had pole position to get off. It's surprising really that anyone got out from this ship at all, from the lower decks, but surprisingly many did. What happens now is the ship continues to develop this list to starboard and in fact rolls right onto her side with a sudden lurch. This sends a lot of people into the water and those who are left are actually clinging to the rail, basically at the top of quite a high cliff, although she's settling in the water fast. A lot of people climbed onto the actual side of the vessel and were walking around on the plates, what should have been the vertical sides of the vessel, now lying horizontal. Others, meanwhile, are scrambling out of the open portholes. Their escape stories must have been incredible Mm. because the ship by this stage is practically underwater and they're popping out these narrow little holes onto the side. From the moment of collision to the ship disappearing completely under the water, she lay easy in the water for a couple of minutes, it's estimated, after she rolled onto her side, but then she began gradually to go down. In that first lurch, as she listed quite violently, the captain went over from the bridge into the water as well. 
That's right. When she rolled onto a side, the captain, who had every intention of staying with her until she went down, was flung into the water. He was one of the lucky ones in many ways. Those who were standing on the side of the ship as she went down described it as being like standing on a beach and watching a rapidly rising tide. And then eventually she gave a sudden rush. Some described an explosion, but that was almost certainly just part of the structure giving way and allowing the trapped air to be released. Mm. So there was a sudden loud noise and down she went with a rush and everyone was suddenly in the water. Most people were dressed in their night clothing if they weren't naked, and very few had life belts. Life belts were in every cabin, but not everyone knew where to find them. Lots of heroic stories, needless to say, of men who gave their life belts to women, and of men who decided they were not strong enough to survive an episode like this, being elderly or just infirm in some other way, so forcing their life belts on other people and then returning to their cabins. How many lifeboats did they manage to get out, if any at all, to try and save people? It would be difficult to in the black of night and the freezing water too. When you're in port, you used to take five minutes for the full lifeboat complement to lower one of these boats. They're big boats, enormously heavy, being made of wood. First you've got to take the canvas cover off, then you've got to clear the ropes that are used to lower the lifeboat off the vessel. And then those aboard the lifeboat have to fend her off as she's swinging to and fro against the top sides of the ship. It takes around five minutes in ideal conditions. These conditions, of course, weren't ideal. It's a miracle that they got nine boats off. There's the usual story, really, that because the vessel was leaning over, most of the lifeboats on the side to which the list is developing towards the starboard are completely useless. Mm. The port lifeboats, after a short time, became no better because they were trapped against the hull of the ship such lifeboats as got clear after that were unmanned and just floated clear of the wreck as she went under. But nine manned lifeboats were got off and that has to be counted as a minor miracle and a real testament to the discipline of the crew. The captain, Kendall, uh, he struggled around for a while. He actually kept the bellboy. Little boy is basically employed to polish the brass on the ship and ring the bell occasionally. He kept him afloat for the better part of 20 minutes before one of the lifeboats pulled him out of the water, whereupon he helped direct the rescue of plenty more survivors. His boat was heavily overloaded, but they put as many people aboard as they could, and then they looped ropes over the side for others to grab onto. Needless to say, if you're in that water for any length of time, your survival time is rated in minutes. And yet many people seem to have managed to find wreckage or upturned lifeboats to cling to and to survive for anything up to an hour. At this point, there's nothing in the vicinity except the store stud. So the really? vessel that's sent them to the bottom is the vessel that they now rely on to rescue them. Now, what is this frightening beast doing right next door? The store stud is sitting by and watching. It's only been 14 minutes, but what is it doing? I'll now turn, because it seems like a good moment, to the store stud's account of events. She claimed that when they entered the fog, they were confident that both vessels were on a course that was going to take them clear. But still, the fog was thick. They couldn't be sure. They heard signals, but they couldn't get a clear idea of what direction they were coming from. So they slowed down, and the order was given to stop. Uh, and in fact, the engineers on the store stud confirmed the captain's account that up to a minute before the vessels collided, he had ordered full astern, so he wanted his vessel stopped. She clearly wasn't stopped, but the skipper Anderson claims that they coasted very slowly into the side of the Empress, which was going at a rate of knots. She hadn't slowed down at all, according to him. So they punched a hole, and then far from attempting to reverse his ship out of the side of the Empress of Ireland, he in fact engaged full power to try to keep her there. 
But the Empress of Ireland was going so fast and had so much momentum that she just screwed out. She was left behind as the Empress of Ireland carried on her merry way and was lost in the fog. Apparently, Anderson sounded his whistle to try to locate the Empress of Ireland to render what assistance he could, but he received no replies. And it wasn't until a few minutes later when they heard an unearthly and terrible shriek from the, the people aboard the Empress of Ireland that they finally worked out where she was and went as close as they dared to try to help. And the fog cleared, and needless to say, the scene that they saw was just dreadful. The ship was sinking very fast. It took 14 minutes from the moment of impact to full immersion. So in that 14 minutes, such people as could get off in lifeboats did, and then the rest were just flung into the water, and they were clinging to whatever wreckage they could find. It must have been an awful scene. From the deck of a ship, it's not the easiest thing to just go down and pick people up. Frequently unattainable to to help quickly. That's right. They launched their boats, as many of their boats as they could. After the collision, they'd already begun clearing them in case their own vessel began to sink. It became obvious that their vessel was pretty much unimpaired in terms of being seaworthy. So the next most important thing was to try to save what life they could. They got around four boats into the water very quickly and began rescuing. Meanwhile, the boats from the Empress of Ireland made it to the store start. It was about one and a half miles between the the two ships. And then, having offloaded the first load of passengers, they then returned to try to rescue others. By the time they got back to the scene, all they could find were bodies. Hypothermia and just sheer shock, to say nothing of trauma injuries that I guess people suffered Mm. in the collision and blundering around in the dark with a whole lot of other desperate people, took care of the rest. Were they alone to take care of themselves? Surely there must have been an SOS and people coming to help? A single SOS was sent off. There were a lot of vessels around, but none in a position to render immediate assistance. Two steamers were sent from Ramuski, which was the mail stop the Empress of Ireland had made, and it took them around an hour to arrive on station. And by the time they got there, of course, all they could do was take survivors off the store stud and off various of the small boats that were in the water. It was (laughs) one of those horrible, horrible things that we all count on never having to see. Because of the frigid nature of the water, after an hour, you're dead. And of the 1,475 aboard, the death toll was done by then, wasn't it? It's been recorded that 22 people, having been rescued, subsequently died. Some of them on the ships that they were taken to, and some of them even when they reached shore. A lot of these people, of course had no clothes or very few clothes and so they were profoundly hypothermic. Mm. It wasn't really until World War II and in fact some particularly ghastly experiments performed in Auschwitz that hypothermia and how you survive it was fully understood. At this stage everyone knew that cold water killed you but no one had any clear idea of what best to do to survive it or even to revive people who'd been rescued from the water in a hypothermic state. What was the death toll? The death toll in the end was 1,012, two-thirds of those aboard. It's quite remarkable. We'll return with uh, our ship tail with John McChrystal, the Empress of Ireland. We'll address this perplexing and tragic collision, perplexing because there are two different stories and they're mutually exclusive when we return. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. The Empress of Ireland. What a massive loss of life in frigid waters. 
1,012. More dead than the Titanic and in very short order in frigid waters in the St Lawrence River in Canada in May, two in the morning. There would have been an inquiry of some significance being worse than the death toll of the Titanic. There was an inquiry. Uh, both skippers arrived back on shore adamant that they were in the right and each of them had the full backing of the shipping line that owned their respective vessels. The Empress of Ireland's owners sued the Norwegians, claiming that they'd sunk their ship, and the Norwegians countersued, saying that reckless actions of the Empress of Ireland had caused the collision and damaged their ship. Faced with these two accounts that were completely irreconcilable, there had to be an inquiry, but unfortunately it was another of these cases where it couldn't be resolved. And in fact, it's been a bit of a mystery down through time what caused this collision. But the most convincing scenario I've seen that puts these two vessels that were actually going to pass quite safely, that actually has them colliding, shows the Empress of Ireland was in fact at fault. And probably because what she attempted to do was at full speed just try to swerve around the Storstad. She presumed the Storstad was going to stand on her course and she would just perform a nifty little manoeuvre at full speed and get around her. In fact, the Storstad was trying to match the Empress of Ireland's earlier manoeuvre, which was intended to make them pass port to port, and that had the effect of just putting them in the T-bone position, as it turned out. It's like trying to sidestep someone on the wing at rugby, and they've picked your move. They don't buy the dummy, that's right. That is quite a convincing reconstruction that I've seen. And there's no other reconstruction that finds itself in favour of the captain of the Empress of Ireland? No, not really. So he was lying? He was lying, lying to cover himself as far as we can tell. He also seems to have lied about having issued the order to close the watertight compartments because there was a telegraph on the bridge that issued that order and that was found by divers to be in the off position. So in other words, he never issued that order. Some of the surviving crew members did actually, on their own initiative, rush to attempt to do that, but it proved impossible. Whether that order would have saved them is completely debatable and probably not. Was the lie found out in his lifetime? Not in his lifetime, no, but he must have had a shadow over him. I don't know what subsequently became of him, to tell the truth. Mm. Like a lot of the story, in fact, it became subsumed by World War I, which followed hard on the heels of this tragedy. Mm. In fact, the store stud went on to be torpedoed off Fastnet in Great Britain by a U-boat, so World War I sank a lot of details of the story, including, to my knowledge anyway, anything that became of Lieutenant Kendall. Survivor stories... Yeah, there are a few of them, and needless to say, they're quite remarkable. One thing that should be noted is there was a large contingent of Salvation Army personnel aboard the Empress of Ireland heading to London for the annual international convention. Fully 167 Salvation Army personnel from Canada died in this episode, although, of course, the Salvation Army doesn't regard it as died, they regard it as promoted to glory. So there was sort of a mass promotion of glory on the day. Some of the most remarkable stories were from Salvation Army survivors. There was one girl by the name of Alice Bales. She was in her teens. She couldn't swim, and she found herself on the rail of the Empress of Ireland as she went under. She jumped off just as the vessel went under, and she was sucked deep underwater. She finally resurfaced. She knew nothing about what you should do to save yourself, except you should just keep your lungs full of air when you were underwater. When she eventually reached the surface of the water again, she had a life belt, but she didn't know how to swim at all. But she saw a man going past doing breaststroke and she did her best to copy him. And she did that for long enough, probably to keep her body temperature high enough to keep her alive. 
just to the point where a lifeboat happened across her and took her aboard. I have been in very cold cold enough water off a glacier. That's good enough, isn't it? That's um, good enough. You have an involuntary reaction. I just imagine what it must be like for that little girl. I found it impossible to breathe. You, uh, you, your body starts to think with its spinal cord. Um, it's very hard to do anything other than an instinctual move to get out. Pretty much your first instinct really is to scream as well. So yeah. you need the discipline to keep the air in your lungs in many ways. Mm, yeah. yeah. Just mentioned before the break that we have a couple of videos regarding the sinking of the Empress of Ireland. The television program was made, uh, I think, by Canadian television. And amazing, John, to see some testimony from survivors there, or at least one. Yeah, the youngest survivor was Grace Hannigan, who was six years old at the time. And clearly they got to her before her death in 1994 and interviewed her. And she was very articulate and gave a very vivid account, which you can see on that, that episode. It's hosted on Vimeo, but we have it up on our Weekend Variety Wireless webpage video section for your convenience. So if you want to go there, Google Weekend Variety Wireless, and you'll see that and also how the ships came together. All right. One other survivor stories? Yes. One of the heroes was a man named Dr. James Grant, who was the ship's doctor. He was asleep, and then he heard the ship's siren and thought that was a bit unusual. Then he heard the engines go into full ahead, and those two things made him decide that this was unusual. There was a very slight shudder, which was all the indication he'd had there'd been a collision. He struggled with the lock on his cabin door, and it took him quite a long time to get out, by which time the vessel was beginning to assume its lean to starboard. He had an awful time trying to get clear of the interior of the vessel, and in fact he was one of the lucky ones who, when the ship had rolled onto its side, managed to push his head out a porthole and was assisted onto the port side of the ship by someone standing on there. He then found himself in the water. Needless to say, he froze. He could swim, but there was nothing to swim to. He attempted to swim to the store stud, which he could see a mile and a half away. But before he got there, he was practically losing consciousness when he was dragged aboard a lifeboat. He was sufficiently revived when he arrived at the store stud to take complete command of everything that was going on with the survivors there. His fellow survivors credit him with saving dozens, if not scores of lives, just through his sheer mastery of the situation. He directed resuscitation, he directed the revival of people who were hypothermic, and just by his command of the situation, he probably rallied the spirits of people who might have gone under otherwise. Mm. So he was one of the certifiable heroes there. There are a couple of curious stories that come out of the Empress of Ireland as well. A sort of urban myth built up around the figure of a man by the name of Charles Lucky Tower, Lucky being a nickname, and Lucky because he was supposed to have survived the Titanic, then the Empress of Ireland, and then the Lusitania. You may remember from many years ago a television program called Ripley's Believe It or Not. This story featured on Believe It or Not, according to that, which stated it as completely factual, Lucky Tower who was serving as a stoker aboard the Lusitania, when a torpedo crashed into the side of her, was heard to yell, What now? As you probably would in your third major shipwreck. In fact, there's no such person on the passenger or crew lists of either the Empress of Ireland or the Titanic. So that's almost certainly a myth. But there was, in fact, a fellow called William Clark who was aboard the Titanic, and then it was his bad luck to be aboard the Empress of Ireland as well. No! But he survived both. Survived the Titanic, that's a hard job. Yes, and you have to presume he was first class. He was going first class all the way because it's quite remarkable that he walked off both of those ships. 
rather chillier in both cases than he expected first class to be. That is incredible. We don't need the myth of Lucky Tower with William Clark. Absolutely not. The body of the baby boy. Now, I found this an absolutely heart-rending story, and it says a lot really also about family dynamics in those days. There was a makeshift morgue set up on the pier at Quebec. The various bodies were brought there in coffins, and apparently there was just a procession of people coming through and lifting their lids to see whether they could recognise a loved one there. Amongst these, there was a tiny coffin bearing the number, body number 118. There was a Montreal candy merchant by the name of C.W. Cullen who'd sent his wife, two children and a maid aboard the Empress of Ireland to England. He was there. He couldn't find the body of his wife, so he set about trying to find the body of his children. He very quickly found the body of his six-year-old daughter by the name of Maud, and then as he was going along the row of babies who had drowned, he found number 118 and identified that as his son, who didn't at that point have a name. No sooner had he done this and walked off weeping, another man by the name of Thomas Archer arrived. He'd been travelling aboard the Empress of Ireland in steerage with his wife and his son. He'd found the body of his wife and he was looking for the body of his son. He found the coffin of body number 118 and identified his son Alfred in that body lying in there. So there was this deadlock with both men convinced that they'd found the body of their infant child. Cullen got his maid to come and have a look and she took one look and said, yep, that's your son. Archer, meanwhile, had been encouraged to go back and look at the body of his wife and to memorise her features so that when he came back for a second look at the baby, he could spot any resemblances there were between his wife and what he presumed to be his son. Apparently, having done that, he was still satisfied that this was his son, Alfred. In the end, a magistrate had to decide and decided that the evidence in favour of Cullen was the greater. So this became the Cullen baby at the stroke of an official's pen. And one last thing, the spooky legend of the ship's cat. Perhaps you should tell us. Is that you don't mind? Not at all. I suspect this may be mythical realms, but there was the story of the ship's cat, a ginger tabby. Never once missed a voyage. Shortly before the liner's final voyage, the cat repeatedly tried to leave the ship before its departure. The crew couldn't coax her aboard the Empress, and she departed without her. And was the first time that the cat did not sail on her that day. Cue spooky music. The moral of the story, then, is listen to your cat, because cats know stuff. John McChrystal, thank you very, very much. That's the story of the Empress of Ireland. So surprising that it is so little known with a death toll higher than the Titanic, John. Absolutely. I hope you're enjoying the reinstalment of the Shipwreck Tales. What we're doing is, well, Grant Smithies um, is away for a bit. Um, we're replaying some of the ones that didn't make it into the archive for whatever reason. They fell overboard in a transformation between one weird thing and another. I can't explain it, but that's just what happened. Um, so more shipwreck tales coming up. We, Grant Smithers and myself will be returning next week, though, um, to have a look at a band of two halves. There was a band called the Gordons. They're now Balta Space. It's the same people. Man, what a story. Uh, punishingly loud in their day, the Gordons. Um, there are so many neat stories, and we've, we'll talk with some of the members. Well, John Halverson, one of the members. Roger Shepard from Flying Nun. We're going to do a little thing. The Gordons to Balta Space next Sunday sometime. So Grant Smithies will be returning in that capacity. Uh, that will be fun. 
why are we doing that? Bailta Space are touring, and it's a rare, rare thing to be able to see Bailta Space live. If you don't know them, look them up. Uh, I think they're well worth it. Uh, last time I saw them live, they actually played a Gordon song. It was freakish um, seeing the Gordons play <laughs> for the first time in what? 30 years or something? It, was, it felt strange. Anyway, it was wonderful. Uh, tomorrow night, there's a fresh outsider tale. Um, it's called Moore's March, a New Zealander fighting in the Desert War in World War II. A grim thing. They got left for dead after an attack. All they had to do was walk 340 kilometres through the desert with, I think, a litre of water. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Plane did spot them, though, and dropped something. Water was gone, and they knew it was just a matter of time now before they died of thirst, unless someone could find help. They'd actually been reported presumed killed, missing in action, so there's no one even looking for them, Graham. Tenth day or so, the sound of an aircraft engine. He swung around in a wide loop, and over them he dropped a small packet of food and a bottle of lemonade that he had in the plane. Now, they never found the food, and would you believe it, the cork came out of the bottle when it landed on the sand. There was only one centimetre of lemonade left in the bottom. Oh dear. Uh, that story is called Moore's March, 1941, I think, uh, World War Two. Also tomorrow night, don't miss Steve Kilby. He's fun. Uh, the front man... The Church, much loved, Australian band, has a lash. What was it like growing up in Canberra? Bloody Bloody awful. Canberra was like eternally being in New Zealand. Really sterile. (laughs) News, sport and weather coming up at midnight. Join us on Overnight Talk 0800 844 747. If you want the full schedule of what's on the Weekend Variety Wireless, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. It's all pointed out there in exquisite detail. Good evening.